Lesson 8, if you remember last time we finished Lesson 7, which was Catholic responses. And we looked at some of the responses of the Catholics that they gave to the Gnostics, which was a real threat in the second century church. And then we also looked at their response to the Montanist movement, which was a charismatic movement that grew up within the Catholic Church, but then later was disciplined out and put out, excommunicated out of the Catholic Church. So we looked at that in Lesson 7. Now we're coming to Lesson 8, and uh, we're finally going to move out of the second century now into the third century. And I know we did that a little bit in our lesson about persecution, because we just kind of had a general overview until you get to the early fourth century, and then we went back to study some of the different people again. But now we're going to be moving from the second century into the third century. We're going to look at the early African church, second and third centuries. Now, as we move along, we're going to begin now to see some doctrinal error within the Catholics amongst the Catholics in the Catholic Church at times now as we move along. I think we saw a lot of sound doctrine being taught, a lot of good things, a lot of practical writings in what we have seen thus far. But now as we move forward, you're going to see a little bit more. A lot of the theologians and the teachers weren't exactly the most sound. Uh, but you'll see that as we move on through the Catholics up to this point were faithful in opposing heresy, and they came to the right conclusions concerning the Trinity and uh, the doctrines concerning Christ and who he is with the different Christological controversies that we will see come up. But there's less faithfulness to Scripture in some other areas, and we will see that. Now, if you can click on to the next one there, uh, Brad. Uh, North Africa was a part of the Roman Empire during this time. And when the Romans spoke of North Africa, they would speak mainly of the, they would mean the northwestern part of Africa. I know that's quite small, but, you know, to your left, up in the west, there's three countries there, uh, modern-day uh, Tunisia, Morocco, and Algeria. That's what the Romans were referring to when they were referring to North Africa. But just for the sake of simplicity as we go through this, when we speak of North Africa, we're also going to be talking about modern-day Libya and Egypt as well. Now, you can go ahead and click on to the next one there, Brad. It's interesting because here you see at the bottom there, you can see Africa just south of the Mediterranean Sea. And, of course, the orange there shows what was under the authority of the Roman Empire. And so you probably can't see it, but I, I wish I had a laser pointer here, but I don't. But... Over to the west, there's a city on the coast called Carthage. And then over to the east, in Egypt, you have Alexandria. Now, in the Roman Empire, the main cities with the most influence and power, of course, was Rome, number one. Number two was Alexandria, which was in Egypt. And number three was Carthage, which was over there in uh, modern-day Tunisia. And uh, Carthage, it no longer really exists as a city today. It's just a suburb now basically in Tunisia, of another city. But those three cities were the main powerful cities, most influential cities in the Roman Empire at that time. And what we're going to be doing here in our lesson about Africa is we're going to be looking at two very influential teachers from Carthage and then two very influential teachers from Alexandria. I also want to mention that during this time, 
the gospel is really penetrating in North Africa. You know, for years, Africa was a land that was just filled with paganism. Eventually, a lot of these northern lands would be Christianized. And there was really uh, some good Christian civilizations that came about through this. And uh, a lot of times we might not think of Africa in those ways. And when I say that a lot of these nations were Christian, and I'm not saying that everyone there was a Christian, I'm not saying they were perfect, but in general, they followed after a Christian worldview. And today, if you go to these lands, Egypt, Libya, Morocco, and so forth, you will find that they are no longer Christian. Do you know what they are today? Muslim. That's right. Because after, of course, Muhammad and the Muslims came about in the 7th century, eventually they made their way to Africa and conquered those nations. But, you know, when you study the history, it's interesting to see how they were, they were pagan. Then they were Christian nations once, and then those civilizations became Muslim for the most part. So like in Egypt now, about th it's about 13% Christian, 13%. They are persecuted and Morocco, I think it's maybe about 1% and they're persecuted. So, you know, you have a change in civilization that took place. If you ever heard of Peter Hammond, I enjoy listening to his historical uh, lessons that he gives. And he talks about how these lands were once Christian and they just became Muslim. If you think of modern day Turkey, Turkey used to be a Christian nation as well. Constantinople was one of the main influential, influential Christian cities at one time in the world. But does anyone know what the name of the city of Constantinople is today? Is it, what's that, Mark? Yep, Istanbul. Why is it called Istanbul? The name was changed. Why Muslims conquered it. Turkey's now a Muslim nation. And in fact, Muslims want to do the same thing with Europe. They want to do the same thing with the West. They want these once Christian nations uh, to become Muslim nations. So anyway, you see that taking place throughout uh, history. So that's sad. But at this time, and later on in the following centuries, the gospel has a great influence there. Now let's begin with Carthage. Carthage was founded in 814 B.C. by the Phoenicians of Palestine, who came mainly from ancient Tyre and Sidon. Carthage adopted much of the Latin culture and had a Hellenistic influence as well. If you remember, Hellenism was Greek culture, and so that influence was there. The greatest city in the empire after Rome and Alexandria, as I mentioned, was Carthage. We have no evidence of Christian influence in this part of Africa before the year 180. Before AD 180, we don't, we don't know of any Christian influence there. We do have an ancient account called the Silitan Martyrs, in which we read about 12 Christian martyrs at the city of Carthage. And that's really where we begin to read about Christians being in this particular area. As we, in our lesson about persecution, I mentioned Perpetua and her friends that were martyred. That was a little bit later. That was in 202 AD, but that also took place there in Carthage. The Church of Northwest Africa was quite interesting because it viewed itself as being in a fierce battle between light and darkness and as being chosen by God out of the world to oppose the pagan society which was around them, which was controlled, they believed, by demonic powers. And what you'll see about the church in uh, Africa, North Africa, was they had a lot of zeal for purity in doctrine and purity in life. 
And so that's one of the things, one of the marks that you'll see concerning the church in that area. Now you can click onto the next slide there then, Brad. And uh, basically after this, you'll just have one more, but it'll be in a little bit. If you want to, you can sit if you want, unless you like standing, it'll take a little bit. But we're going to first look at, as far as the two influential teachers from Carthage, Tertullian, who lived between 160 and 225. And it's interesting to look at Tertullian because when you talk about the attitude of the church in North Africa, Tertullian is really just a picture of what many of the churches were like because he was very fiery. He was very zealous individual. Now, he was a native of Carthage. He may have spent his whole life there. He received a high standard of education in the Greek and Roman culture, and he converted to Christ at the age of 30, and eventually he became the first Christian writer in Latin. And again, Latin was the language of ancient Rome, and uh, eventually it's going to be uh, a language where many of the theological works were written in. But he represents the church in Northwest Africa in its uncompromising hostility to the pagan society in the empire. Very bold, very fiery, and he he may have been an ordained presbyter. We don't know for sure. If not, he was probably a teacher of the catechumens. The catechumens were those who were being catechized. They were taught usually for a couple of years before they were baptized and brought into the church as members at during this time in history. Now, Nick Needham, in his work, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power, gives three different categories for the writings of Tertullian, which were very influential, and I'll just go, with, go through them with you. Number one, he wrote about Christian faith in relation to the Roman Empire. He argued that the Roman government should stop persecuting the church because Christians prayed for the emperor, and they prayed for the welfare of the empire, and they also paid their taxes. They were faithful citizens, so he makes that argument. But Tertullian also insisted that no Christian should actually take part in any affairs of a pagan society. So he believed that no Christian should work for the government, No Christian should work for any business which supported pagan religion or any educational institution or the army. He also taught that no Christian should ever go to any kind of public entertainment. So that's what he taught. Now, I do think that there is some legitimacy to what he's saying. You know, if there's a business that's just so identified with pagan society and is promoting paganism, you could see why obviously a Christian wouldn't work for them. There were certain... Uh, oaths, uh, certain things that you had to do in the army as well, where maybe you would uh, have to compromise in that part of Africa, and so forth. So you can see that, but at the same time, it can be taken a little bit too far, because we are in a fallen world, so it is possible to be in a military situation or to be in a business where you don't have to compromise with those issues as well. But nevertheless, this is what he was writing about. He viewed the empire as the camp of darkness, while the church was the camp of light. Now, what's interesting about Tertullian is you remember I mentioned that Justin Martyr, who lived in the middle, you know, he died around the middle of the second century. We talked about him. He was one of the most well-known of the apologists. Justin Martyr saw Christianity as the fulfillment of Greek philosophy, and so he had no problem quoting the Greek philosophers and viewing them as having a lot of truth, but just not the whole truth. Whereas Tertullian thought that Greek philosophy was corrupting and spiritually dangerous, that Christians should have absolutely nothing to do with it. And his fam- one of his famous sayings was, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? 
And so he thought if the scripture contains the knowledge that we need, why go to the philosophers? So that is what he wrote about basically just an overview of the Christian faith in relation to pagan society. Secondly, he also wrote much defending orthodoxy against heresy. When we talk about orthodoxy, we're just talking about that which is sound, that which is biblical teaching. He was a great defender against much false teaching. He wrote against the Gnostics. He wrote a book that's entitled Against Martion. If you remember, Martion was one of the main Gnostic false teachers, and so he, as well as many others, wrote against him. He also wrote against the heresy of Sabellianism. Sabellianism, which came about during the life of Tertullian, is named after its uh, influential teacher, obviously, Sabellius, who was an obscure Roman theologian. Now, Sabellius, he taught that because there is only one God, Christians were to believe that God was only one person who acted as Father and then acted as Son and then acted as Holy Spirit. We know this today as the doctrine of modalism or the heresy of modalism. There are different forms of this today. There is a church I know in Mandan that teaches it. There's a larger church in Bismarck that teaches it. These are uh, oneness Pentecostals. The one in Bismarck is called the Sanctuary, and that they are promoters of this heresy of modalism. They see the Son and the Spirit simply as different modes or ways that the Father is acting, not as distinct persons. Modalism is also referred to at times as monarchianism because of the belief in the monarchy of God the Father. Monarchy comes from the Greek, uh, two Greek words, monos, which is one, and arche, which is principle. So this is the one principle, this one principle of the Father, while the Son and the Spirit are God the Father acting as Redeemer and acting as Sanctifier. So that's modalism, and Sabellianism is just another form of that. Now, another easy way to put it is someone who is a modalist or someone who was a, you know, who was a follower of Sibelius would be a monotheist. They would believe in one God, but they would be Unitarians, a Unitarian monotheist, one God who exists as one person. Whereas we in Tertullian and what the Orthodox Church throughout history would have been is monotheists who are Trinitarians, a Trinitarian monotheist, where you believe in one God who has eternally existed in three distinct persons. That's what we believe. Now, Tertullian had some problems with that when it comes to the eternal existence of three distinct persons, but we'll talk about that. But nevertheless, he was a Trinitarian monotheist. Tertullian wrote the work that is known as Against Praxius. Uh, he was promoting this doctrine of Sabellianism. Tertullian was the first Christian writer to use the word Trinity as a description of God's three-in-oneness. Now, there, has, there was also the word before Tertullian that was used. We talked about that earlier. Triad was used to describe God's three-in-oneness, and God's three-in-oneness was always taught amongst the early church fathers. But as Tertullian is now defending uh, this doctrine, he uses the word trinity. He also used the Latin words substantia and persona, that is, in English, substance and person, to distinguish between God's oneness and his, his threeness. So one substance, three persons. That's the point. So the Son and the Spirit have the same divine substance as the Father, and they are as much as God as the Father is. But 
Nevertheless, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three distinct persons. One way to explain it is this. Let's take, take Mark back there. Mark is a human being, right? I think we all agree about that. He's <laughs> so he's a human being, but he's also, he's, that's, that's what he is. Who is he? He's Mark Huntington, one being, one person. God, on the other hand, he is one in being, one substance, but three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So our finite minds can't grasp it all, but nevertheless, that's what the scriptures reveal to us. Tertullian, though, as he is defending, he did have an error. He thought that the Son had not existed as a distinct person from the Father from all eternity, but had become distinct just before the creation in Genesis 1. Prior to the creation, the Logos, or the Son, he believed had existed as reason in a non-personal way with the Father. And so he's, you know, he's, he, as he's defending the doctrine against the Sabellians and as he's developing this, he did have some, some errors concerning that. With some modifications, though, the whole Western Latin-speaking church accepted Tertullian's doctrine of the Trinity, but there would be corrections concerning some of his errors concerning the Logos and, and so forth as time went on. He also taught on the Incarnation, and he did a very good job of that, and the whole Western Latin-speaking church also agreed with his teaching on that, and that became the teaching in the church there. He applied the same teaching about substance and person to the relationship between the divine and the human natures of Christ in his teaching on the Incarnation. Jesus Christ, he taught, was one person, who united himself in two distinct substances, divine and human, not mixed up, but each retaining its own distinctive properties. Truly God and truly man in one person at the same time, which again was biblically accurate. So this is the second uh, subject that he wrote on very extensively. And then third, he wrote extensively on Christian living as well. In his writings concerning Christian living, he recommended frequent fasting. He taught that a person could marry only once, even if their partner died, which, again, as we mentioned before, is not biblical. A Christian who committed, and here again some errors, a Christian who committed a serious sin after baptism could be forgiven only once. Later, he said, a Christian who committed a serious sin after baptism could not be forgiven at all. And there is some, by the time you get to Tertullian, and we plan to have a lesson on this, Lord willing, as we go down the road, we want to look at baptism in the early church, and we'll see some of the false ways of thinking that developed around baptism. Uh, but there was this idea that your sins were washed away at baptism, and then if you committed a serious sin after baptism, Amongst some of the teachers, they said you couldn't be forgiven. And Tertullian there was promoting this as well. So that, again, was another error. Eventually, um, he glorified martyrdom. He said that one betrayed Christ if they ran away or bribed a magistrate. And again, I would agree with, you know, bribing a magistrate. Yeah, but, you know, again, running away, well, it depends on the circumstance. Again, Jesus said if you're persecuted in one city, flee to the next. But obviously, biblically, if you're put in the situation and you have no escape, and it's either deny Christ and sacrifice to the emperor, to the idol, or not, well, in that case, you, you obviously you shouldn't deny Christ. If you, if you deny Christ, or maybe if you try to run away in that circumstance, you could say you're denying Christ. But 
At other times, you know, fleeing is an option, and it's, it's following Jesus' counsel as well. But Tertullian was of this stripe. He thought that way. Eventually, he wrote in defense of the new prophecy, which is also, was also the Montanist movement, which is what we learned about last time, this movement that grew up within the Catholic Church and later was separated from the Catholics. And he wrote in defense of them. Some people wonder why, but if you, if you understand how fiery and how bold Tertullian was, you could see why the Montanist movement appealed to him. And again, Tertullian had a very high moral standard, which at times I would say is not exactly a standard that lined up with God's law. And the same was true with the Montanists. And so you could see why the Montanist movement would have been attractive for Tertullian. But he writes in their defense, there is debate whether or not Tertullian actually left the Catholics and joined with the Montanists or not. We're not sure. If he did, it was probably around 208, the year 208. There was a Northwest African Montanist sect that left behind that Tertullian left behind him after his death, and they were referred to as the Tertullianists. And that sect la- lasted until the fifth century. And we do not know exactly what separated them from the Montanists. Obviously, they had similarities, but there was obviously some some differences between them as well. Tertullian died peacefully in A.D. 225. Although he left behind him excellent theological work, he was not recognized for this. And as uh, he would have, as, as he maybe should have been as well by the church at that time, because he became sympathetic to Montanism, uh, many did not appreciate the good things that he did. He was increasingly regarded as a heretic by the church fathers who came after him. And if you think of today, the Roman Catholic Church today obviously recognizes a lot of the church fathers that we've gone through, and I think they misuse a lot of the church fathers, but, you know, they're referred to as St. Ignatius and, uh, you know, St. Clement and so forth, but there is no St. Tertullian in the Roman Catholic Church. There's no St. Tertullian in the Eastern Orthodox Church either, and the reason is because of his compromise with Montanism. So just thought I'd mention some of those things. Any questions or comments that anyone has concerning Tertullian before we move on? No. Okay, sounds good. uh, Howard looks like he's got a really serious face there. I don't think you appreciate some of what Tertullian did there, Howard. No, actually, well, Tertullian comes up with one of the people, if you recall, when he was going through a little bit of the the history or argument of the Gerasene College, 1 John 5, 7, if you're there, and he's one of the first fathers not as direct as quoting the whole thing, but as using in his argument on the Trinity meaning of the Godhead, and as we're told, the three are one, you know, the one is not just Mr. Second Coming Out, but there's going to be five coming out or whatever the timeline is. And that's, that's all I was just going through my mind. Is, you know, it's so neat when you look up, you know, there's, there's so much history and so much. You can read a lot about someone Sure, sure. Yeah, it's what he's one of those guys where he did so many good things. And then he did some things that are just, you know, what are you doing? You know, and there. Yeah, yeah. 
Sure. Sure, sure, definitely, definitely. And there are people like this throughout history. There are people like this today. I was talking to someone about a modern-day uh, well-known preacher like that. Today it's like, wow, he teaches so many good things and does so many good things, and then some things it's just like, it's like, what did he do now? <laughs> you know, or what did he say now? You know, so there are some people like that. But Tertullian was like that in many ways. Last then slide, then Brad will go through. We'll look at Cyprian of Carthage, lived between 200 and 258. Born in about 200, he was well-educated in Greek and Roman literature, and he was a part of the upper class. He was rich, and he became a famous lawyer and a professor of rhetoric, which rhetoric, if you know that, that's the art of public speaking. He became disgusted with the corruption and immorality of pagan society. He eventually found in the Christian faith what he was craving, and he converted to Christ in A.D. 246. His conversion occurred while he, he, he was learning scripture, and it, the book of Jonah had a big effect on him as well, and he was, he was converted. After his conversion, he gave away his entire fortune to the poor. And it was quite interesting. As someone who was very rich, he didn't want to live for that anymore, and he, he gave that to the poor. He was discipled by a pastor by the name of Selith. Excuse me. I was going through these, some of these Roman names, and I was going through the pronunciation. <laughs> You know, you, I listen to the pronunciations on the Internet to try to get them down. But Cecilius, before, as a lover of the world, he impressed crowds with his speech. But now in the church, he did not want glory for himself, but spent much of his time reading Scripture, meditating on Scripture, praying, and fasting. When his friend Donatus, Bishop of Carthage, and that's not the same Donatist that we mentioned before, and we'll look at that movement again, the Donatist movement. This is a different Donatist. When him, the Bishop of Carthage, died, Cyprian was made Bishop of Carthage, although he was hesitant because he thought someone older in the faith should be Bishop. Now remember, when you get to this time period, it's not just the Bishop of a local church, it's, it's the Bishop of a particular area as well, so that was developing by this time also. He was hesitant because of how you know, young he was and how you know, very little time that he was even a Christian. He became a bishop after being a believer for only a little bit over two years. So that was the case with him. Now, when we talk about his life, we'll just give a few different things uh, about him. We'll get look at four different things briefly. Number one, we'll talk about the persecution that he faced. Cyprian ministered during the reigns of Decius, who reigned from 249 to 251, and Valerian, Valerian. <laughs> I was pronouncing it correctly before I came here, but I knew when I come here to give the le lesson, I'm not going to give it right, but Valerian, 253 to 260 is when he reigned, and those were two reigns of empire-wide persecution. Uh, it was really fierce. I mean, remember Nero in the first century? But that wasn't empire-wide. During these two reigns, it was empire-wide persecution. And Cyprian ministered during those times. So think about this. Not long after becoming a Christian, he becomes both a, he becomes a bishop, and he's ministering as a bishop during a time of fierce persecution. So no doubt that would have been something that was very challenging. In the year 248, Rome had celebrated its thousand-year birthday. So celebrations were occurring all over the empire. 
There were many games that were being held in the Colosseums. Many of the gladiators were fighting for entertainment in the Colosseums. And, of course, they were killed in the Colosseums. Over 1,000 gladiators died in 248 just in the city of Rome during these celebrations. But at the same time, Rome was struggling. Farms and businesses were losing money. And the Emperor Decius, he thought that this was occurring because he lost favor with the gods. And so he was blaming the Christians. He says, look, we're turning from our ancient gods, and they are judging us because so many people are becoming Christians. So he wanted to wipe out Christianity. He institutes this persecution. The people were forced to sacrifice to the gods. And this was the time when they had to have a certificate to prove that they had offered sacrifice. If they didn't have that certificate, they would not be able to buy, they would not be able to do business. And a very beastly concept. When you think of the beast in the book of Revelation, and you think of, you know, when we talk about in the future, having to receive the mark or else you cannot buy or sell, you see this beastliness, this, this beastly way of doing things among governments oftentimes throughout history. And it was here. So this made this really hard for the Christians at this time. Many stood strong, but many also compromised. And during this persecution, Cyprian went into hiding, and he shepherded the church by epistle. Eventually, Decius, the emperor, died in battle only 18 months after bringing about this persecution, and Cyprian then returned to minister in the church. The question came up then, what do you do with the lapsed? What do you do with those who compromised during the persecution? Well, Cyprian allowed for them to return after a time of penance. Remember, that was just a time of repentance where you were watched to see, are you sincere in your repentance? Cyprian believed that only the bishops of the congregations had the right to determine whether the lapsed could be brought back into the church or not. And he had to be strong on that because there were others who were not bishops of churches, but they were known as confessors, those who were being persecuted, maybe those who were in prison, those who stood strong during the persecution, and they carried a lot of authority because they were very influential. But Cyprian had to say, no, you, you can't decide whether or not they can come back. That had to be the bishops, is what he believed. So that's what he was promoting. The church at Rome basically held to the same view of Cyprian at Carthage concerning what to do with the lapsed. And Cyprian uh, would allow the lapsed to come back in if they repented and showed some time that they were really repentant. Now, some thought that Cyprian was too strict. So they were led by a presper by the name of Novatus, who broke away and he formed a rival church which was more lenient in its discipline to letting those who had compromised to let them come back into the church. They thought Cyprian was too strict. In Rome, although the church at Rome agreed with Cyprian, there was some other Christians led by a presbyter by the name of Novation who also broke away from the Catholics and broke away here from the church in Rome, and they formed a new congregation which was much stricter. So Novit the, those who followed Novatus were much more lenient than Cyprian and the church at Rome, whereas those who followed Novation were much more strict. They would not, the Novations would let no one who had lapsed back into the congregations ever. No second opportunity. So this was known as the Novationist controversy. We dealt with this 
back in our lesson on persecution in the early church. The Novationists had many congregations. They had congregations in Carthage, Spain, Egypt, Syria, and in Constantinople. Its congregations remained separate from the Catholics all the way to the 600s, to the 7th century. So you had those two different churches. You had the Catholics and you had the Novationists. Uh, if you read some church histories, and they'll, they'll, they'll talk about you had the Catholics, and they'll talk about the different groups that broke away. And an early group, you know, as I mentioned, some will mention the Montanists, although they were unorthodox. You have the Donatists, and they'll also mention the Novationists. But remember, the Novationists in their theology weren't different than the Catholics, but they had a different take on who to allow back in and who not to allow back in if they had compromised. It seems that in the 7th century, they merged back into the Catholic Church at that time. Novation was an important theologian, though. I want to just mention some things about him. He wrote a work called Concerning the Trinity, in which he defended the biblical teaching of the Trinity against Sabellianism, and he argued strongly for the two natures of Christ as God and man in one person. So something also important to mention about Novation. Now, secondly, what I want to mention here about Cyprian, not just what happened with him under persecution, but secondly, I want to talk about his view of the Catholic Church. Cyprian believed that the Catholic Church alone was the true Church of Christ, and all others were false. He believed that the Holy Spirit worked only in the Catholic Church. So in other words, he wouldn't believe that the Holy Spirit worked in the Novationist churches. Uh, he believed that those who followed Novatus also... They, they were false congregations, is what he would have said. He was no, he, one of his famous sayings was, outside the church, there is no salvation. Now, let me just read for you a quote here in concerning this subject. This is what Cyprian said. Whoever stands apart from the church and is joined to an adulteress, that is a non-Catholic church, is cut off from the promises given to Christ's church. And he who leaves the church of Christ does not attain to the rewards of Christ, but is an alien and an enemy. You cannot have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother. If anyone was able to escape the flood outside of Noah's Ark, then you can escape judgment if you are outside the doors of the church. Cyprian also believed that the apostles were the first bishops and that bishops in his day were the new apostles. Although they did not have apostolic infallibility, they possessed absolute disciplinary authority over their congregations. He believed they were clothed with supernatural power to administer baptism in the Lord's Supper, which he believed were life-giving sacraments. Now, let me mention something about Cyprian. If you read his writings, he wasn't the best theologian, just in all honesty. And again, as I mentioned, for those of you who weren't here at the beginning, as we're moving out of the second century into the third century, the best theology wasn't always taught. Cyprian was, when you, by the, I, I talked about there were some, uh, as you read in the writings of the church fathers, you can see some of the teaching of baptismal regeneration coming in. By the time you get to Cep Cyprian, you have absolutely, he was affirming the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. That is, you're born again when you are baptized in the water. And so that's what they were teaching at that time. Now, obviously, many Christians today even so and throughout history believe that after you believe then you are regenerated and you are born again of course you know for myself and i'm sure many others here we would hold to that that no we are regenerated by a sovereign work of god and a result of that is we have faith 
But either way, this whole issue of baptismal regeneration would, is just not healthy at all. And we will see some of the uh, bad understandings that came out from the, the teaching of that doctrine. Now, <laughs> when the fact that Cyprian said there's no salvation outside the Catholic Church, that, that just made the controversy with the Novationists even more serious. Because uh, think about this. What if someone was converted and baptized in a Novationist church? But then later they wanted to join a Catholic church. What was to be done? Well, Cyprian believed that the person has to be rebaptized. While Stephen, who was the Bishop of Rome in the years 254 through 257, he said, no, the baptism was valid if it's done in the name of the Trinity, even if it's in a Novationist church. So you had some disagreements on that. Now, the churches of Northwest Africa held to Cyprian's view. So what Stephen, the Bishop of Rome, tried to do is he tried to force his views on all the churches in Northwest Africa, and he threatened to excommunicate all the churches in Northwest Africa and in Asia Minor if they did not hold to his view. Now, what's interesting about this is here again you have, because Rome was such an influential city, you have here the Bishop of Rome trying to exercise power and saying that he has authority over all of these other bishops. But that didn't carry through at those times because people didn't agree with him. Let me just read you again what Cyprian said in response to Stephen. Let each bishop give his opinion in this matter without judging another and without separating from the fellowship of those who are not of his opinion. None of us must set himself up as a bishop of bishops. Think about that. I mean, think about the Roman Catholic Church today who believes that the papacy goes all the way back to Peter and that the Bishop of Rome was a Bishop of Bishops. Well, when you actually look into the history and into the early writings, you see this was not the case. None of us must set himself up as a Bishop of Bishops, nor force his brother bishops to obey him by tyrannical terror. Every bishop has full liberty and complete power in his own church. No other bishop can judge him, and he cannot judge any other bishop. Let us all await the judgment of our Lord Jesus Christ, who alone has the power to appoint us as governors in his church, and who alone can judge our conduct. So he believed that all bishops were equal. Cyprian also misinterpreted the New Testament many times by interpreting it in an Old Testament way. So he was, for example, he taught that presbyters or elders in the church were priests. So he would use the word priest for them. And he would also refer to communion as a sacrifice. And so, again, now you have the teaching coming in, referring to the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice. So I want to clarify, though, he did not think that the Lord's Supper was a fresh sacrifice of Christ for sins, but that at the Supper, Christ presented himself to God the Father as the one who had made the once-for-all sacrifice at Calvary. But he said that partaking of it, believers were united with that perfect self-offering of Christ. Also, let me mention that before Cyprian, at the end of the second century, there are others who were using the, began to use the word priest for presbyters, but they also continued to use the word presbyters as well. And Cyprian again promoted this idea. And what you'll see in some of these early church fathers at this time, they're bringing many elements in from the Old Testament and interpreting the New Testament in an Old Testament way. Finally, let me just mention, just to finish, there was number three, the plague that hit Rome, the Roman Empire during this time. 
and f- many people were dying. Even uh, for, during, during the plague for a time, 5,000 people were dying in Rome every day, about 5,000 people. During this time, Cyprian and the Church of Carthage worked hard to provide food, clothing, and medical care to those in need. Cyprian used much of his own money to help the needy. Many fled the city, but the Christians stayed behind to minister to the sick. And then finally, let me mention Cyprian's martyrdom. Cyprian ministered by letter during the first persecution under Decius. I mentioned that. But he remained in Carthage during the second major persecution that hit under Valerian. While Cyprian was on trial before the proconsul at Carthage, he refused to sacrifice to the idols. After being sentenced to death, he requested to be allowed to die alongside his fellow Christians, but this was denied him because the Romans wanted to make an example out of him. This is what happens if you don't sacrifice to the gods. And he was martyred then in A.D. 258. That will finish up Cyprian with that, and Lord willing, next time we will then look at the two influential teachers from the city of Alexandria. Today we looked at Carthage. Lord willing, next time we'll look at two others from Alexandria. Any final questions or comments from anybody? Yes, yeah, we'll, we'll look at that. And you could even say that some of the seeds were starting to be planted around this time because Cyprian, in his teaching about the Lord's Supper, he believed that communion could also benefit believers who had already died. And so, again, you start to have this developing, and you start to have this developing uh, at this time of believers uh, being purged after death. And you could pray for them, and then they would be out of that. You don't have the full-blown doctrine of purgatory that's taught in the Catholic Church today, but there's just little things that are developing in different areas, and eventually they come together and a whole theology about purgatory develops, and then you have the whole issue of indulgence develops, and you can you know, buy them out of purgatory so that they can go to heaven. But we'll look into that more as time goes on. But the little seeds for that are being planted already at this time. Something that wasn't that you didn't find before this time in the earliest years of the church after the New Testament was finished. And of course, you don't see it in the New Testament either, or contradict teaching in the New Testament itself. All right, shall we pray? Mike, would you close us in prayer?